You know what, y'all? We, we got something in common. Uh, if I lived in Huntsville, this is where I would be going to church. Uh, because I love your pastor and his wife, of course, uh, precious souls. And uh, I, I definitely would be where you guys are sitting. And uh, I, I'm anxious to, uh, to share with you some of the things the Lord's been teaching me over a, a good period of time. Uh, I haven't really taught on this subject very many times, uh, but I, uh, and so it, let me just tell you what I'm going to be talking to you about. It, it's the subject of prayer, and I know that if there's anything that could put us on a guilt trip, it's somebody preaching about prayer. Um, but I, I, the, my intention today is, is not to guilt trip anybody. Uh, man, if you got to be guilt tripped into prayer, I think we're missing the point. But I, I'm convinced that the reason that we struggle with prayer, and, and of course I'm, I'm kind of assuming that we do, typically in churches like ours, we're a whole lot better at allowing God to speak to us through his word than we are speaking to God in prayer. And again, I'm convinced that the reason that that is, is is number one, we really don't know what God thinks about prayer and how important that is to him. I think if we could see that, wow, I think it would change that whole dynamic. And number two, I think the reason we struggle with it is, yeah, we see all of these New Testament admonitions about prayer, but I'm not so sure that we really understand how to get those practical. You know, have you ever talked to, you know, somebody that, uh, you know, they'll say, you know, you know I, I pray for two or three hours. And, and, and there are people that do that. Praise God. A lot of us look at those people and go, I don't know what you say. I, how could you possibly think of that many things to, to say? How many needs do you have? And I think typically that's the way that we think about prayer is this is all about my needs. But in, in, from Genesis chapter 3, in the Old Testament and, and moving forward, God dwelt where he deserves to dwell. He dwells in the third heaven. And if there's any place that God deserves to be, it, it is certainly that place. But w- what you see happening in the Old Testament is God is beginning to forge a group of people into a nation. It's the Jews. And they're going to become the nation of Israel. But they're in bondage in Egypt. And and they're suffering. And they do that for 400 years. And finally, God delivers them out of that bondage. 
and they make their way through the Red Sea. They get on the other side, and of course, you know, the waters fall on all of the Egyptians, and we got a little flannel graph out here, and you guys remember all of that stuff. But something happened when they got on the other side, and they began this journey to the promised land. Okay, now again, God has been dwelling all of this time in his rightful place in the third heaven. And yet, as they were in the midst of this journey to the promised land, in Exodus chapter 25, God does something that is just absolutely crazy. And you know what it was? He told Moses that he wanted the children of Israel to give an offering. And this offering was different than all of the tithes that you see in the Old Testament. There were actually three of those tithes. Uh, and, and, and so what he's doing is he's saying, listen, there's certain things that I want the children of Israel to bring because there's something I want to build. And this thing is... So significant. Because this place that I want the children of Israel to build, this is going to be my sanctuary. This, he says, is going to be the place where I dwell on the earth. Now again, this is why I was saying to you, He's always been dwelling in the third heaven in this incredible place. And yet, what he said is he wanted to dwell on the earth in a sanctuary. And verse 9 of Exodus chapter 25 calls that place the tabernacle. And do you understand what it was that God was actually saying by wanting to receive this offering and wanting them to build this building, what God was saying is, listen, I don't just want to be a God who's there. I want to be a God who's here. I don't want to be a God who is distant. I don't want to be a God who's somewhere out there. I want to be... With you. I want to dwell where you dwell. And listen, in Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 30, God keeps talking about this place. And you know what he says? He says, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune. With thee. And what we're introduced to at this point in the Bible is one, in my estimation, one of the most incredible things in the entire Bible. What we're introduced to is God's incomprehensible desire to meet with humans. I mean, can you? fathom that this is a church that understands the god of the bible and all of his holiness and majesty and glory and yet somehow in the heart of our god y'all he wants to meet 
with us. And you know what God was actually wanting with the children of Israel? Is he wanted to find people that wanted to meet with him. He had that desire. And so you know what he did when he gave, was talking about this offering that he wanted to, them to give? He didn't make it mandatory. He didn't say, hey, everybody do this. And here is the specified amount that I want you to give. He said, listen, what I'm looking for is everybody who is of a willing heart. And you give whatever you jolly well want to give. And and again, God, through this whole ordeal, is saying, listen, I want to meet with you. But I'm looking for people who want to meet with me. And I want you to know something this morning, y'all. God wants to meet with you. And he wants to meet with you on a daily basis. And, and in this Old Testament tabernacle, okay, now the, I'm talking about it for a very specific reason. So, so try to catch this. In the construction of this sanctuary, this tabernacle where, where God was going to dwell, where his presence was going to be made manifest, he was so absolutely detailed and specific about how they were to construct this thing. And you know why he was so specific? Again, number one, this was going to be the place where he would dwell. And so it was going to have to be according to certain specification. But number two, he was laying out all these details because everything in it and everything about it was picturing a spiritual reality that would be fulfilled in Christ and would apply to all of us. Now now listen, in that Old Testament, the way that God chose to meet with his people was a through a physical tabernacle. Do you have the slides there? Why don't you put that first one up there? Ta-da! The dwelling place of God. Okay, now listen, if you see the dwelling place of God in Revelation chapter 21. <laughs> it's ain't Jack. But th- this is a, an Old Testament, or a replica of that Old Testament dwelling place of God. And, and yet everything about this, every piece of furnishing that's in it, every feature about it, is picturing the relationship that God was going to have through Jesus Christ with those of us that comprise his church. And and so everything about it was very specific. And what God did is he, he took Moses up into the mount, the Bible says, and he gave him the pattern that was going to be used to build this thing. And do you know what the pattern was 
According to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23, the pattern that Moses was to follow was the pattern of the universe. Did you know that? God wanted this to represent the universe. The universe is comprised of three heavens. I've already mentioned several times. God dwells in the third heaven, but there is a first heaven. The first heaven is from the ground to the clouds. Okay, it's the earth's atmosphere. From the ground to the clouds, that's the first heaven. The second heaven is what we call outer space. And it's where the sun and the moon and the stars are. But the third heaven is out there beyond the galaxies, beyond the constellations, above the frozen waters of the deep. Way out there. And on the very top of those frozen waters that John called crystal is the dwelling place of God. And when God told Moses to build the tabernacle, he says, listen, I want it to reflect the heavens, the first, second, and third heaven. And so this this tabernacle is actually made of three parts, okay? There is, first of all, the court. That's the part that is all around that you can see where you could get inside and walk around. That's likened to the first heaven. That part in the middle where it looks like a big tent, that is actually the tabernacle proper, okay? And it has two parts in it. The first part where you would enter through those curtains is the holy place. And and then beyond the holy place, just about three-fourths of the way through that thing, there was a veil. And on the other side of the veil was the place, the holy of holies. And so God told Moses, listen, when you make that thing, make it according to the patterns of the heavens. And again, we can see those three places that have unbelievable significance. He also told him in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1 to make it according to the true tabernacle that is in heaven. Okay, so when we get to that third heaven, it too is a pattern that God wanted to be used for this tabernacle. The Bible talks about this morning, though we are seated here on Logan Drive in Huntsville, Alabama, The Bible says at the same time, we're seated with him in heaven. And we're seated in the courts. And yet, as the court is looking forward, it looks to the throne room. And the actual throne would be likened to the third heaven. Okay, so we've got the court, the holy place, the throne room of God. And we've got the dwelling place of God on the throne. So God says, listen, I want you to make it according to the patterns of the heavens. I want you to make it according to the true tabernacle that's in heaven. But this whole thing is actually made according to the pattern of Christ. And we could go through every detail of this. And 
and this is not where we're going this morning, but I, I want to just give you the basic understandings about this tabernacle so that we can get this place to the place to where we can apply this to our lives. But everything in that tabernacle and about that tabernacle is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, in the Old Testament, the way that God intended to meet with his people was through this physical tabernacle. But it's all picturing what he was going to do spiritually. So you would think that somewhere along the way in our Christian journey, we would go, hey, if this is a picture of the church meeting with God, maybe we ought to go back and just see what all of these things picture so that we can have a significant meeting with God on a daily basis. Now listen, if we tried to go back to that tabernacle and physically have a meeting with God, we'd be in false doctrine. That tabernacle would become for us, according to Revelation 2.9, it would become the synagogue of Satan. We don't do this physically. Because this was the way that God wanted to meet with them. It was just a picture of what the book of Hebrews calls a new and living way that we meet with God. And so... With that minor little introduction, (laughs) what I'd really love to talk to you about today is how we can take all of those pictures and turn it into something practical tomorrow that causes the time that we spend with God on a daily basis to forever be transformed. And I, I really do believe that if you'll work with me for just a little bit, man, I, I do believe that we could see that meeting time, that time of communion, where our God is saying, I want to meet with you. And you know what? The beautiful thing is he doesn't force it on any of us. Again, he's looking for those who have a willing heart. He's looking for people that want to meet with him. I think I'm in the midst of a group of people today that really does desire to meet with God and not just do lip service or tip our hat, but for this to be something meaningful and something significant. And so let me let, let, let me just try to walk us through this place where God's presence was. Okay, tomorrow morning, God wants us to enter into his presence. Do you believe that? He wants us to enter. And there's only one way to get into that tabernacle. There is a gate in and this is, this is what it would have looked like. This is part of the offering. They were supposed to be bringing fine linen of blue and of red and of purple. And it was going to be that gate. And do you know what? 
every person who gave in that offering and gave that, they would come into that tabernacle and have a sense of ownership. And again, it wasn't because God was demanding it. It was because they wanted to have that kind of relationship with God. And you know what? I'm not so sure that this is just my little crazy idea that maybe we should go back to the pictures and use this as our (laughs) pattern for meeting with God. I think that maybe God was trying to tip us in that direction through what he said through David in Psalm 100 and verse 4. You know this verse. You know what it says? Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And into his courts with praise. I was just talking a minute ago. Usually when we think about prayer, we're, we're thinking about, okay, all of our petitions that we want to give. And what God is saying, listen, if you want this meeting time to be significant, how you enter in is very, very important. Because first and foremost, you don't come asking for anything. Because he's already done so much. Why would we expect him to do anything else for us if we're not thankful for what he's already done? Have you ever looked in the Bible and seen the significance of thanksgiving? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18 says that it is his will that we be thankful Listen, there's going to be a lot of time in our Christian journey where we're going, I wonder what the will of God is. When you come through his gates and enter into his presence and you come with thanksgiving, you know what? You find yourself in the big, fat middle of the will of God right there. You don't have to wonder about that. In Psalm 69, verses 30 and 31, you know what it says about thanksgiving? It says that it pleases him. And again, I want to say, on your, our journey with Christ, there's going to be a lot of times we're going to pillow our head at night going, Lord, am I really pleasing you with my life? Listen, when you're offering thanksgiving, you never have to wonder whether or not you're pleasing God. And the significance of thanksgiving is also seen in Romans chapter 1. Because, listen, when thanksgiving is absent, What it shows us in Romans chapter 1 is that God doesn't really take too kindly to that. Because in Romans chapter 1, what it shows is the downward spiral of a man or of nations when they basically have flipped God off. And God then gives them up and gives them over. And, And he describes this incredible judgment that we're experiencing in America right now. Because the first judgment is inordinate sexuality, which leads to inordinate homosexuality, which leads to inordinate impropriety, total lawlessness. Go check that out in Romans chapter 1. We're living in the judgment of God right now, y'all. And you know how it begins... God tells us in Romans 1.21, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Do you know the next part? Neither 
we're thankful. Wow. How about that? I'm just telling you, y'all. Our God is worthy of thanks. Our God is worthy of praise. And if we want to follow the pattern that God was picturing in the tabernacle, we come through those gates tomorrow morning with thanksgiving and we're praising God. Listen, for two things. Number one, who he is. Do you understand that if God wasn't who he is, you know where we would be? And the Bible says that he is two things. Did you know that? He's got a a lot of attributes, but he is two things. There's two things that define him. There's two things that are his essence. There's two things that are his nature. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 says, God is light. That is, he is holy. And in him, it says, there is no darkness at all. Do you understand where we would be if the God that created us was not holy? (laughs) We'd be in a mess, y'all. And listen, because God is light, a lot of other attributes start flowing out of that. His justice, his judgment, his equity, his wrath, his vengeance. And you know what? We need that kind of God that can't be anything other than holy. But I'm telling you, y'all, if all God was... It's holy. We would already be annihilated off of the planet. Next thing it says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9 is that God is what? Love. Hallelujah. But those are the two things that make God who he is. And listen, coming out of his love are all kinds of incredible attributes. His grace. And his mercy, and his tenderheartedness, and his compassion, and his forgiveness. And I love the way that the psalmist talked about it in Psalm 86 and verse 5, that our God is ready to forgive. You know why he is? Is because he's a God of love. And so, listen, before we're ever asking God for anything, we're first of all just thanking God and praising God as we come into his presence for who he is. And we thank God for the relationship that we have with him. And we think about all of the blessings that he has bestowed. He's already bestowed upon us. Before we ever ask anything, he's already been so incredibly good to us. You know, with my grandkids, my wife and I, we, we, we tease them about this brushing your teeth thing. And what we tell them is, listen, only brush the ones you want to keep. (laughs) Okay. Do you already know where I'm going? With our Thanksgiving, only thank him for the blessings you want to continue to enjoy. Because do you understand, if, 
if God just stopped doing for us what he has already been doing, our life would change just like that. God can't be anything other than holy and love. But, wow, he has been so gracious. And so we spend time thanking God for, for those of us that are married, we thank God for our spouse. And we thank God for our kids. And if you're as old as me, you thank God for their spouses. And you thank God for your grandkids, recognizing that if he ever took any of those blessings away, life would change forever in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I want to be thankful for those kinds of blessings. I want to thank God because, yeah, the Vances are over in Kenya and they get it. I, I work in what is typically the poorest country in the world. And, man, I'm really thankful for where I live. In my house, in as jacked up as our country is, I'm thankful that I, I live here. I, I thank you, thank him for the fact that I'm not walking everywhere I go. I've got, I got two vehicles and food to eat every day. And before I ever ask God for another thing, y'all, I've got so much as I enter into his presence to thank him for, for who he is and for what he's done. And so that's our entrance in. But as soon as we make our entrance into the gate, we're confronted with this next thing, the brazen altar. Listen, do you see the flames in there? This thing is crackling. This thing, as soon as we walk into those courts, we feel the the heat on our face and the smoke is getting in our eyes. And we've got to deal with the brazen altar. Now, the people would come and they would bring a lamb that would be offered, they would bring it to the priest, and the priest would sacrifice that animal, and then it would be a burnt offering in the brazen altar. And, and do you see where what this is actually pointing to? John, in John chapter 1, said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Praise God, y'all, when we come into his presence tomorrow. Do you know what has granted us the access into his presence? The Lamb of God that didn't just take away the sin of the world, but took away our sin. And when we come to the brazen altar, we're reminded of the cross and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sin. And it all becomes personal. If you'll let it. Because I come into his presence and I'm thanking him for all of these things. But as I come to the brazen altar, I'm recognizing that Christ had to go to that cross because of me. It was my sin that took those thorny vines and 
wrapped them into a crown that got jabbed into his head. That was my sin that did that. And it was my fist that beat him in the face. It was my sin that whipped his back. It was my sin that took the nails in one hand and a hammer in the other and nailed him to the cross. It was, and I could continue on. Even after he's hanging on the cross, it was my sin that is continuing to jeer at him and blaspheme his holy name. And he is willingly offering himself as a sacrifice for my sin. And my sin, if, if nobody else had sinned, it would have, my sin would have been enough. For everything that you see playing out in John chapter 18 and 19, it would all play out like that because of my sin. And yet, if I was the only one who had sinned, you know what? He would still be hanging on that cross for me. And so as I come to the brazen altar, man, this thing becomes very personal. And I realize it was my sin. And yet as I'm reminded of the cross, I'm also reminded of his call to me to take up my cross and to follow him. The way that Paul talked about it in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 is his cross becoming our cross. The way that 2 Corinthians 4.10 talks about this is that we are to always be bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus that or so that the life of Jesus might be made manifest through my body. Okay, listen to this. What that verse is saying is the cross was the instrument of Christ's death that brought me life. And now he wants his cross to be the instrument of my death that brings him life. A body that he can, for sake of a better word, dwell in and manifest his holy presence through that. But it doesn't happen without the cross. And so in your notes, the, cro- the brazen altar is the place of yielding and it is the place of presenting. And what I mean by that is in Romans chapter 6 and verse 13, in this whole name of bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, or Galatians 2.20, the fact that we are crucified with Christ, we come and just like that priest would do in sacrificing that animal and its various members to be placed on the altar to be burnt, We come, and as New Testament priests, we yield our members, the members of our body, and we present them, Romans 12, 1, as a living, what? Sacrifice. And so, 
<laughs> and so, as we come tomorrow, and we're presenting our body and yielding our members, just work through your members, man. And Lord, today I come and I present to you my feet and my legs because I re- recognize these represent my walk. And today, my walk is all about you. These, I, I am crucified. And, and so I, I receive the nails that will crucify my walk today. Help me to walk worthy of you unto all pleasing. Help me to walk even as you walked. Help me today to walk in the Spirit. And then we lay our back and our torso upon the wood of that cross. And then we extend our arms and our hands, all of these members that represent our work. And we present them and yield them to the Lord and say, Lord, I I get it. It's not about me working for you today. But it's about you working through me because I'm I'm nailed to a cross. I'm crucified. And, And Lord, today I want to carry out your will. And so I bow my head. You remember what God called the nation of Israel? He called them a stiff Necked, and so we offer our neck and bow our head to receive the crown of thorns that it will crucify our neck as it represents our will. And we're saying, God, today, not my will, but thine be done. And, and as we're crucified with Christ and the blood from that crown of thorns begins to drip. It drips into our mouth and it drips into our ears and we yield to him our mouth and our ears as they represent our words, the words that we speak and the words that we hear. And we're saying, Lord, I don't want to say what I want to say today. I want you to use my mouth to speak your words. And today, I want to make sure that in, with all of the clutter and all the clamor of all the voices, I want to hear your voice today. And these eyes, I present these eyes as they represent my wants. And so today, Lord, I want to want what you want me to want. <laughs> and again, I realize that crown of thorns is jabbed into the part of my members where my brain is as it represents my way the whole direction of my life my dreams my goals my aspirations lord it's all crucified because i'm crucified with christ i don't know if you caught this but what we just did is walk through our members that we've been commanded somehow to yield i don't know how to yield them any other way than through prayer y'all and so we yield what represents our walk. We yield what represents our work. We yield what represents our will. We yield what represents our words. We yield what represents our wants. And we yield what represents our way. And we're saying to the Lord, Lord, today I want to go where you want me to go. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to be 
who you want me to be. I want to say what you want me to say. I want to hear what you want me to hear. I want to want what you want me to want. And I want to go in that place that you want me to go. I want to think the way that you want me to think. And so this, this, this brazen altar is not just this little thing sitting back there in the Old Testament and, well, isn't that cute? Man, this is the place, y'all. This is the place of sacrifice. But listen, as soon as we leave the brazen altar, we go to the next place, a little deeper into the court, and this is the place of the brazen laver. And for your notes, this is the place of washing and cleansing. We just talked about the fact that at the brazen altar, this is the place of Christ's sacrifice. And we take personal ownership for our sin that nailed Christ to there. But when I come to the brazen laver, and this is... A water basin. After that Old Testament priest would offer that sacrifice, there would be blood on his hands and it would have gotten on his feet. And he comes to that brazen laver and that water, he looks into it and he sees a reflection of himself and the fact that he needs to be washed. Because after the brazen laver, he's going into the holy place. And what the Old Testament said is if you don't come in there washed and cleansed, You'll die. And so we come to the brazen laver. And it's here that I've got to recognize that a lot of that sin that I was taking personal responsibility for, for crucifying Christ, that sin that Satan was using to hold me captive at his will, that sin that almost sent me to hell. You know what I'm reminded of at the brazen laver? That there's a lot of those sins that I go back to. And if I don't go back to, boy, I'd sure like to. And it's at the brazen laver that we take our sin. And as Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26 says, with the washing of the word, what we do is we take our sin and we submerge it into the word of God so that we can see our sin the way that God sees it. And when we're seeing it the way that God sees it, it's no longer an enticement. It's no longer in allurement. What God calls it, and all I'm doing is just calling out scripture, he calls it grievous. He calls it an abomination. He calls it darkness. He calls it unrighteousness. And so I'm taking my sin and going, oh God, the sin that I keep wanting to go back to and the sin that I allow in my life, Lord, I want to see it the way that you see it by allowing your word to reveal that to me. And as I see it the way that you see it, I want to say about my sin what you say about it. And so we're not just confessing little sins. Uh, this is the way that it works for most men. Lord, I, you know, I've got this problem with, with lust. And so 
I want to first John 1 9 confess my sin because I know you're faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness until I do it the next time and we have no intention of being washed of being cleansed and so as we say about it we're not just calling it lust because Matthew chapter 5 what Jesus called lust is adultery what Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 calls lust is idolatry. And so at the brazen labor, I'm saying, Lord, I am an adulterer. That'll take you back. Lord, I am an idolater. And that'll take you back. And a lot of women have issues with worry. And so we're not, Lord, I've just got this problem with worry. But we're saying, Lord, I have a problem taking you at your word. I don't trust you. I really, when it really comes down to it, Lord, I don't believe you. And when we're saying about our sin, what he says about it, there's just a, there's a difference. And then at the brazen labor, we do with our sin, what God says to do with it. And we don't continue in it. We put it off. We no longer yield to it. We no longer let it rain. And again, all I'm doing is just going through the scripture right now at everything that he says that we're to do with our sin. But you know what he says to do with it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1? Cleanse yourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God. You know what, y'all? A lot of us have been living at the brazen altar and 1 John 1, 9 way too long. And we never get to the brazen labor where God says to us, Hey, cool, yeah, I took your sin here at the brazen altar But now you cleanse yourself of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God. And and so the brazen labor, again, becomes this incredible place of washing and cleansing. And then we move into the holy place. And man, I've... I wish we had more time, y'all. I'm going to have to start cutting this to the chase. And all God's people said, amen. Okay. So we, we, we come now into the holy place. There's another curtain. And we've entered into another realm. And as that curtain goes behind us and closes, our eye is drawn over to our left. Over on this side of the holy place is the golden candlestick looks like this. And this is the place of emptying and filling. Emptying and filling. And let me tell you why I say this. This golden candlestick represents the Holy Spirit. Check this out. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, There is one Spirit. We call him the Holy Spirit. 
But in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5, in the true tabernacle in heaven, there's seven lamps of fire that are burning around the throne. And you know what it says about those seven lamps of fire? Which is the Holy Spirit. And and something interesting about the candlestick is the way that God told Moses that he wanted him to make it was of one piece. Of one beaten work. That's all one piece. It's not just put together. It's one piece that manifests itself in seven different ways. Do you know what the seven spirits of God are? God tells us what they are in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. It says, and notice that that, on that candlestick, the first one is is really representative of the Holy Spirit, but these are the manifestations. And what Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2 says is it's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of might, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And that's who comprises the Holy Spirit of God. And so we come before the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, recognizing how desperately we need him. And so we come before the Lord and we're emptying ourselves of ourselves. And we're pouring ourselves out and saying to him, Lord, I'm coming and I'm pouring myself out. I'm emptying myself so that Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, I might be filled with your spirit. And this is all about the permeation of the spirit. Our lives being totally permeated by the Holy Spirit. Because when we're filled with the Spirit, we walk in the Spirit. When we walk in the Spirit, we manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what God is looking for in our lives. And so we're there for the permeation of the Holy Spirit. But on the other side of the room, there's a picture of the Word of God. And so we're here and telling the Lord, the Holy Spirit, Lord, I need your illumination, the illumination of the Spirit. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, I believe it is, where he talks about being enlightened. Listen to it. Enlightened by the Spirit. Because we can't understand the Word without the Spirit. John 16, 13 talks about Jesus is saying, guide them into all truth. And the guide into the truth is the Spirit. David prayed in Psalm 119, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy word. And so we're here for the filling of the Spirit. So that we walk across to the other side of the holy place, where is the table of showbread. And what it was, y'all, was a table where there was bread on it. And there was something through that table and that bread that God wanted to show. (laughs) This is deep, isn't it? So what is it 
that he wanted to show us from this bread on this table. Well, again, just real quick. That, that table is made out of shittim wood. It's, the, it's a very dense wood. Uh, insects could not penetrate that wood. But after it was built, it was overlaid with pure gold. And then what was going to happen is the priest would make the bread that would actually go on the table of showbread. I don't know what you know about gold in the Bible, but it's a picture of deity. And so what we have here is deity and bread that is presented on gold or deity. And Jesus said in, chapter, in Luke chapter 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, and so this bread, I couldn't find... A pic- this was a pretty cool picture, and so I chose that one because I couldn't find one but the, that lays it out the way the Bible says. On that table of showbread, yeah, there were 12 loaves that were on there, but the way that God said to do it is in two rows of six. And again, I get it, 12 tribes of Israel, and it represents that. But check it out. I come to this place where the word of God has come to me as holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, by God using human, human instrumentality. And what he presents to us is 66 books that comprise the word of God. And you know what would happen on the Sabbath day? The priest would consume that bread. And so for your notes, this is the place of nourishing and equipping. Because what the Bible talks about is us, like Jeremiah, thy words were found and I did eat them. And they were the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. And, and Job, I, I, I want your food more than I want my necessary food. And Paul talked in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6 about, listen, being nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine. And that's what I'm, why I'm calling it nourishing and equipping. Because we come in our time of prayer and we say, Lord, in just a few minutes, I'm going to be opening your word that has come from you, and as you use human instrumentality to, to give me your word. But, Lord, I need that illumination. But, Lord, I want to consume your word. And as I do, may it nourish me. May I be nourished up in the words of faith. And may I be equipped with good doctrine that comes from your word. And we're preparing ourselves for the time that we're going to spend in the word. And so then... From there, we move to this next place. Okay, now right here is the veil. On the other side is the Holy of Holies. But right here is the altar of incense. And it represents prayer. The psalmist said, Lord, may my prayers be as incense. And on the golden 
or the altar of incense or the, 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 the golden altar here, there was on top of it, you see that censer. Okay, and so this had the incense inside of it, and that, that incense would permeate the holy place, but it would also pass through the veil and over the veil into the holy of holies. And what the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, is that in that true tabernacle in heaven, you, know, you understand this, there's a golden censer. And it is the prayers of the saints. All of the prayers. You know what our prayers are, y'all? It's a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. It's not this ball and chain. Oh, doggone. I'm such a guilt trip because I don't pray enough. We're missing the, the beautiful realities that were pictured for us back here. Listen, our prayers arise to his throne as incense. And so this is the place of casting and requesting. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares upon him, for he careth for you. Philippians 4 and verse 6, make your requests known unto God. Remember we, talk, we came in and we talked about the fact, we're not asking him for anything, but hallelujah to you, y'all. He wants to know what we care about. He wants us to make our request known. And then one day, once a year, one man was able to take that golden censer. It was the high priest. And he would take it off of that altar. He would make his way through that veil into the holy of holies. This is the place where God's majesty and glory was made manifest. And there were two things in the holy of holies. The, the ark, go ahead, the ark of the covenant. Now the ark of the covenant is that box. Okay, the lid to the box is the mercy seat. The ark is the box, the lid is the mercy seat, and this is really the meeting place. This is where it is because a merciful God has provided a way through the Lord Jesus Christ who is the propitiation for our sin. You know what the word propitiation is? Mercy seat. He's the mercy seat. And this, y'all, is the place of worshiping and fellowshipping. And we've, we've come and we've offered thanksgiving and praising. We've come to the place of yielding and presenting and of washing and of cleansing and of emptying and filling and of nourishing and equipping and casting and requesting. And now we're here to worship the Lord and to fellowship with the Lord. And so we follow David into that holy of holies so that we can dwell in the house of the Lord and behold his beauty and inquire in the place where he dwells 
And we follow Mary into that place so that we can come and sit at Jesus' feet. And we listen to him. And we follow Isaiah into that place who said as he came into the true tabernacle in heaven, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple and the seraphim are crying, holy, holy, holy. And so we enter into this incredible place of of worship. And like Isaiah, seeing him high and lifted up, we see ourselves again for who we are. And we recognize we could not be here without his mercy. And as we're there, we begin to hear things, y'all, that we've never heard before. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? You know why I don't think most people respond to God's invitation? They don't hear it. Because you only hear it in the Holy of Holies. And we're able to say things that we never thought we'd be willing to say. Here am I. Send me, man, if you need someone to go. Hey, y'all, I've, I've overstayed my welcome, and I do apologize that it went this long. If you're a guest, come back, because this brother doesn't go this long. <laughs> and some of the people are saying, yes, he does. But, but can I just get you for one, one more sec? Listen, y'all, everything that we just talked about is everything the New Testament teaches us about prayer. We just didn't really have a practical way to enter into the presence. And I, I, hey, I'm just an idiot that's going to be going back home tonight. I got no say in your church. Thank you so much for the invitation. But I would love to ask you tomorrow to... uh, most of us have meetings, and so you know what we do? We schedule them, and we plan for it. And so if we know we've got a 6 o'clock breakfast with somebody, well, what time do I need to go to bed? And what time do I need to wake up? Because I can't miss that meeting. Okay, tomorrow, the God of the universe wants to meet with you. And so schedule your meeting tonight. How, how much time do you want to spend tomorrow? And, and do you, you know what? You could do this in 10 minutes. Or you could do it in three hours. For real. And, and some days you, you may only have 10 minutes. It, it's just been that kind of week. But get there. And then there's other days you may, you may just say, wow, man. I have got to spend time with the God of the universe. Well, I, I ain't got... I ain't got time for that. Well, what do we have time for? I don't have time to meet with God. Who do you have time to meet with? <laughs> really? When the God of the universe is desiring to meet with us. So I, I'm asking you to at least give it a shot tomorrow. And what I'd really love to ask you to do is take the next week to do it. 
Because I really believe if you'll do it for the next week, you'll do it for the rest of your life. If this church is ever really going to reach its potential and what God wants, I promise you, it won't be without the prayers of its people. And it won't be out without the corporate prayer of its people. And so, God bless you. Um, I, I, I hope you'll take that, that challenge. And uh, I'll see you tomorrow right on the inside of the gate in the court.